the Better Samaritan podcast, where we're learning how to love our neighbors well in a world filled with injustice and pain. Join me, Kent Annan, and Jamie Ayton, my co-host and colleague at the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College, as we interview experts with insight on learning to do good better. The History of North America podcast is a sweeping historical saga of the United States, Canada, and Mexico, from their deep origins to our present epoch. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this exciting, fascinating, epic journey through time, focusing on the compelling, wonderful, and tragic stories of North America's inhabitants, heroes, villains, leaders, environment, and geography. The History of North America podcast series is an incredible historical adventure that chronicles the thrilling, action-packed tale of a continent. I invite you to come along for the ride. Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy Angel, and you are listening to Revived Thoughts. Just as Apollos mightily convinced the Jews, publicly showing by the scriptures that Jesus was Christ. So from this desk, you have been taught that all the promises and predictions relating to the person and work of the Messiah refer to Jesus of Nazareth. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today's sermon was preached by Charles Hodge. It was delivered in 1859 at Princeton University after the passing of a beloved professor. Joel, this is basically a funeral sermon. Uh, I don't believe this is actually the funeral, but this is the sermon that was preached to the school when, you know, school was back in session, everyone kind of remembering the man that had passed. And this may sound like a sad sermon to listen to, but to quote John Raynar, who actually was the one we got to speak the sermon, I really want to meet this guy. And that's exactly why I wanted to bring this sermon to our attention. In this sermon, Hodge comforts these students who lost a beloved professor and his own uh, friend, and he shows us what a great life looks like to him in Christ. And so you can actually kind of see what a model Christian life, at least one version of it, can look like, and that can inspire all of us to little to live a little bit more for greatness when we see uh, men like this who pass, even if they pass before their time. Also, we're going to go back uh, to Princeton, but this is a much earlier Princeton than the years of Warfield and Van Dyke and Machen, which we have talked about a lot in the past. This is the more towards the beginning. I mean, this is actually the very beginning of Princeton Theological Seminary. Yeah, Charles Hodge was born in the year 1797. So America is brand new. Uh, George Washington just won re-election at this time. They give you kind of a sense of the era of America. Hodge's father was an immigrant from Ireland and he died a couple years after his birth, so we never really got to know his father. His mother then moved the family to Princeton in hopes that him and his brother would get accepted into the school there at Princeton. The plan worked, and Charles graduated from Princeton in 1815, and in 1814 and 15, a revival broke out at the school, and Charles uh, became a believer, was saved at, during those revivals. At the insistence of Archibald Alexander, he decided to enroll at the Theological Seminary there in Princeton. Archibald Alexander's son is the man whom uh, Hodge is preaching the sermon we're about to listen to uh, of comfort for. So he's a very big deal in uh, Hodge's life. In fact, Hodge will name his son 
Archibald Alexander after him, and you will see throughout this entire story just how how interconnected these two families uh, were. So he encouraged the basic Archibald Alexander would encourage the man to go into ministry who would someday be preaching comfort after the passing of his son. Um, it kind of a neat thing there where you never know who you influence might influence somebody very important to you and the people around you someday. Hodge graduated from Princeton Theological Seminary in 1819. He became the professor of Oriental and Biblical Literature and only the third staff member at this very young seminary that itself had only been formed in 1812 by Archibald Alexander. Yeah, Archibald Alexander, that, that his family would play a huge role in Charles's life. Troy mentioned already that Charles would end up naming his son after Alexander because of how close they were. And speaking of family, his wife, Charles Hodge's wife, a woman named Sarah with an H, you got to specify Sarah with an H, <laughs> uh, was actually the great granddaughter of Benjamin Franklin. That's a fun fact. It's a small world. It, you know, I actually Googled when when researching for this episode because I was curious how many people were in America. Yes, you, know, so you see a small world, but like the world was smaller back then. Like America was smaller back then. In the year 1800, how many people do you think were in America? <clears throat> okay, in the year 1800. Yeah. Pop trivia night question real quick. Wow. 10 million? It's like 5 million. It's oh, a little wow. over 5 million. That's it's not like that many. 5 million 300,000. Yeah. When we say it like that, I mean, Benjamin Franklin, anybody I mean, could have been Benjamin Franklin's well, granddaughter. Well, that's like, I mean, a, a lot of big cities have that population. Yeah. So, like, the fact that no, that's, that was the entire population of America, different era, smaller definitely. world. For a few years, Hodge uh, would go to Europe and he studied languages there and he would come back to Princeton and teach what he had learned during his time in Europe. Another member of the Alexander family, Joseph Alexander, joined him as his assistant there in his travels. In 1833, he got a sharp pain in his leg. We don't really know what, what caused it, whether it was an injury or some type of issue with the leg itself, but it took him three years to really recover and heal from it, and he was so immobilized that he actually started teaching out of his office at Princeton instead of the classroom. He also wrote a lot as one of the main writers for Princeton's paper. It was a widely read journal back in the day where journals yeah. meant something and people read them. Sometimes you have to say that because then they're like, oh, a widely read journal, cool. But you have to remember journals 170 years ago were the, you know, the... We're going to have a scientist that's going to write in and be like, <laughs> excuse me, journals are very, very popular yes. and very are you kidding intricate me? I, As an academic, I am constantly being getting letters from my fans. Uh, no, but back in those days, saying you were a widely read journal is, I don't know, the equivalent of having a big YouTube channel today or something like that. It's actually <laughs> important. It, it was a very important thing. Mm -hmm. Not that it's not still important, but it was maybe more important to the average person. He said that while he was at the seminary that, quote, not one new idea in theology came about. And some people kind of look at that and don't see that as a success. So you didn't really co cover any new ground. But in an era of higher criticism and an era of new ideas, Nietzsche's over in, you know, Europe doing his thing. And you have all these new uh, problems arriving in theology. For the 50 years that Hodge was running the show, nothing out of Princeton was anything but traditionalism. And, and a lot of people say, well, won't that stagnate and make the faith dry? Well, that was some of Princeton's best years and some of the best thinkers like B.B. Warfield and Machen, these guys would come out of that era. So no, it doesn't seem to be that is what exactly It's, it's kind of like a, it's revived thoughts uh, thesis, right? Yeah, that like, you know, exactly. all, all the theology that 
is about has already existed and been yeah. preached about. It's all been around. And that's exactly it. Hodge is a guy that would would probably be a fan of Revive Studios. 150. I like to imagine <laughs> he would be because we're taking we're saying that some of the best ideas are actually in the past and defending them. But this did not mean that they left current events alone. They were a widely read journal, and so they would comment a lot, you know, take that theology down to surface level and apply it to things today. You know, prohibition was a big deal. They would talk about it. Abolition was a big deal, and that they would talk about it. And Hodge's opinions were read by many, many Americans on what to do. On the subject of abolition, Hodge definitely had to grow a little bit. He was a little bit of uh, not maybe in the place that we in 21st century America would certainly like. Um, originally, he his original position was, I don't like slavery, but technically, I think the Bible allows it. And he would say that the abolitionists who say slavery is unbiblical, it's sinful, were wrong to say the Bible said it was sinful because you have, you know, letters like Philemon who said Philemon. Oh, I, say Philemon. I was about to say, did you say Philemon? <laughs> Sorry. I know, I just, okay. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I don't say anything because I'm like, maybe that's how you should no, pronounce it. Maybe I, he, I've been saying I it wrong this whole stumbled. time. Philemon said these letters like you that. Still, were, you're saying ah! Philemon. How do you say it? Philemon. Philemon, really? Philemon. I've actually heard Philemon before. I mean, like I said, that might that might Philemon. be a legitimate okay. way to pronounce Let it. Let me say Philemon because I do feel like that's the more typical way. Okay. He would say, look, Philemon, it technically is in there. It is biblical and you're hurting the cause of Christ in the Bible to say things that are in the Bible are not biblical. And so he was very much... It, it, almost like a stickler, like, yes, I'm with your cause, but don't, you know, use the right wording or it's bad and I'm against you in a sense. Um, so he tried to find a middle ground between this issue that was splitting the Presbyterian church and, you know, it would, would eventually split the country in half. By the time of 1861, he was definitely an abolitionist full on, but he didn't want secession. He didn't think the idea of secession was good. He didn't like the idea of the country splitting up. He wanted a nonviolent end, but he wanted abolition at this point. Once the Civil War breaks out, Hodge was squarely on the side of Abraham Lincoln in the North and one of the South to end the scourge of slavery to be ended. He had been deeply troubled by the fact when it would come about that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. He wrote about it. It was very heartbreaking. I thought just the whole Civil War affair itself was heartbreaking. Definitely. Yeah. In 1872, he would go on to publish three volumes of what would be known as his systematic theology. And many call this his greatest work. It was 2,700 pages long and definitely the most influential th thing he did during his life. Some uh, have called Hodges nothing special because he didn't champion new theological ideas. You know, very, very little things were breaking ground in his theology. However, he saw himself as a, a, a defender and an apologist of the faith. In fact, he was one of the few in this era that would write a book attacking Darwinism, which was really popular at this time. Yeah, Darwinism was obviously beginning to grow. The Origin of the Species was written while he was alive. And whereas a lot of people were kind of accepting it, well, science says this is the way it is, so this must be the way it is. Uh, Hodge pushed back against that hard and said, no, I don't see that. And you can see that same kind of mentality from before. Like, the Bible doesn't say it, so I don't see it. Um, and I'm not going to acknowledge it. And for the time he was running the show, Princeton did not either. This episode is brought to you by the Better Samaritan podcast with hosts Ken Annan and Jamie Aiden. The whole idea is we're looking at how do we do good better. The Good Samaritan helped out along the road, but then in Dr. Martin Luther King's sermon, he talked about how we want to also figure out why did the person get beat up along the road? So we want to make the whole road safer. So that's the that's where we're coming from on this podcast. Far too often, we've seen Good Samaritans whose hearts were in the right place 
but because they weren't also helping with their smarts, they actually ended up causing harm. So we really want to bring both our, our faith and look for biblical understanding, as well as what can research and science teach us to be able to help us do this work better. Most often, it's these small acts of kindness that make the biggest differences in the lives of our neighbors. And so on the podcast, we explore those small ways to get involved, those tangible, practical, concrete ways of what it means to love our neighbors. You can find Better Samaritan anywhere you get podcasts. Uh, the lack of change under Hodge's rule led to people eventually calling him the Pope of Presbyterianism. He was extremely influential, and just one of the reasons he was influential is because he was a professor at the same seminary for 50 years. He would end up teaching um, over 3,000 students in his tenure, and they did a little study. More seminary students had him as a professor than any other teacher in the entire 1800s. So just imagine all the people that were under him, especially because Princeton was a really big name in that time, were all going to go out and they would have Hodges teaching with them. That little thing alone would end up making him a very influential um, teacher, even if he didn't uh, maybe have influence in some of the traditional ways. In this sermon, we see this man who was so important to the faith of future America, so important to the theology of future America, but he's not preaching and teaching this great theology, this on high uh, metaphysical stuff so much. He's teaching comfort because a dear friend of his, the son of Archibald Alexander, this man he had known for a long time, and he'd known his son a long time, and he, his brother had actually worked with him for a while. Uh, this man had passed unexpectedly, and Charles Hodge was preaching a loss to students who were suffering the loss of a beloved presser. He was preaching a loss that he himself felt deeply and personally as well, um, and just trying to comfort people and point to them, look at the great life he lived, if we could all aspire to live a life like that. chapter 9, verse 20. Nothing holier than this can be said of any man. Angels stand uncovered round the humblest tomb on which these words are inscribed, and so do we. The feeling which has gathered this audience, and which now fills every beast, bows every head, and moistens every eye, is that reverential love for him who at this very desk once preached Christ. Had he taught on any other theme, though with the tongue of angels, and he had possessed all knowledge, that unfolded all mysteries, he would be admired and then forgotten. Associated as he with your knowledge of Christ, your experience of his grace, your hope of salvation, at least you will never forget him. First, in preaching Christ, he preached that Jesus of Nazareth is the true Messiah. Just as Paul was pressured in spirit and so testified that Jesus was Christ, just as Apollos mightily convinced the Jews publicly showing by the scriptures that Jesus was Christ, so from this desk you have been taught that all the promises and predictions relating to the person and work of the Messiah refer to Jesus of Nazareth. You have been taught that he is the seed of the woman who was to bruise the serpent's head, the seed of Abraham, who in all the nations of the earth are to be blessed, the son of David, who was to sit as king on Zion, the one whose dominion is to stretch from the river to the ends of the earth the one who was to be a king to the Gentiles and the glory of his people Israel, the one who was to bear the sins of many and make intercession for transgressors. Before him, the kings of the earth were to shut their mouths. Second, 
He preached that Jesus is the Son of God. So Paul preached Christ in the synagogue. Here Christ has been constantly held up as the second person of the Godhead, the eternal Lord, who created all things that are visible and invisible, and who upholds all things by the word of his power. For this incarnate God, your profoundest adoration has been demanded. Your supreme love and the obedience of your conscience and the devotion of your entire life. He has been presented as the proper object of all religious affections, and you have been called upon to receive him as God in your inner life. You were taught that spiritual and eternal life consists in fellowship with the Son of God, in our knowing, worshiping, and serving him. You have been warned that to deny the Son is to deny God altogether, that to profess to worship God and yet not to worship the Son is a contradiction, that there is no clearer manifestation of God than Jesus Christ, that if men do not believe in light as luminous, they cannot believe in light as a fluid diffused through space, and if they do not believe in God as seen, they cannot believe in God as unseen. Christ has therefore been here, preached as the true God and eternal life. Third, when you were beset with all manner of doubts, and when all around you seemed dark, Christ was presented to you as the faithful and true answer. He has been exhibited as the Word, the Revealer, the source of all certain knowledge. You have not been taught to regard truth as something to be attained by research or received on the testimony of reason. Reason here sits veiled at the feet of Jesus, and hears from his lips the answer to our anxious question, What is truth? His answer carries with it its own evidence, luminous and illuminating. It enlightens the understanding, and it harmonizes with our consciousness. Every chord vibrates in unison with his celestial voice. As the heavens are high above the earth and cannot be disturbed by the power of man, so faith founded on the teaching of Christ is exalted above all the assaults of skepticism. In this sense, you have been taught that Christ is of God made to us wisdom. Fourth, when you were burdened with a sense of guilt and disturbed by a judgment, which is all the more fearful because it felt to be deserved and understood as inevitable, it was in this pulpit Christ has been preached as your righteousness. You have been taught to regard your own works, all you can either do or suffer as utterly worthless. You have been pointed to the Son of God, who was clothed in our nature and made under the law. But following all its demands, he worked out for you a righteousness which satisfies all the requirements of justice, and whose merit is commensurate with the infinite dignity of him whose righteousness it is. Clothed in this spotless robe, you feel secure even before the bar of God. Fifth, your fallen pastor preach Christ as your sanctification when you are oppressed with the awareness of corruption and helplessness, and when you are convinced that you could not change your own hearts, could not repent, could not even feel your guilt or mourn over your corruptions. Oh, when your heart was stone and your constant lamentation was that you could not make yourself holy or feel worthy to receive the grace of God. Your pastor stood to convince you that you were acting like a foolish child, a child trying to make itself beautiful before it could trust its mother's love. He unfolded you the mystery of sanctification by showing you 
that it is the love of Christ that produces holiness, and not holiness that produces the love of Christ. That he loves us, not because we are lovely, but makes us lovely by the assurance of his love. He led you to see that your life is hidden with God in Christ. That it is not you that live, but Christ that lives in you. And therefore, that the only possible way in which you can ever be delivered from the dominion of sin and transformed into the image of God is not by any effort of your own, not by any educational process, not by acts of self-denial or penance, not by the efficacy of any external rites, but by believing that Christ loves you, despite your unworthiness. In other words, Christ has been presented as the only source of sanctification, as his righteousness is the only ground of justification. Sixth, the preacher who so long filled this pulpit preached Christ as a redeemer, not only in the sense already mentioned as freeing us from the condemnation and power of sin, but as the deliverer from all evil. Christ has been exhibited as clothed with almighty power, imbued with infinite wisdom and love, and pledged to save his people from the ailments of the world and from the power of their enemies. He raises them above the cares and sorrows of this life, sustaining them in times of trial and in the hour of death, and delivering them at last even from the power of the grave, and presenting them faultless in soul and body before the throne of God. As the trophies of his redeeming grace, you will be witnesses with me that he whose departure we all so much lament did preach Christ as the Messiah, as the eternal Son of God, from Sabbath to Sabbath, publicly, and from house to house, he testified that this is the true grace of God, and preaching, he was made of God to you, an aroma of life during life. But how was he so eminently fitted to preach? His first and most important and indeed indispensable qualification for this work was that he himself knew Christ. He not only had the knowledge which is attained by the study of the scriptures, but that knowledge which is due to the inward revelation by the Spirit. Paul says that it pleased God to reveal his Son in him, that he might preach him among the Gentiles. He does not refer here to the outward manifestation of Christ which arrested him on his way to Damascus, but to an inward revelation. It was spiritual illumination by which he was enabled to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. One glimpse of that glory transformed the blaspheming persecutor into the humble, adoring, devoted servant of the Lord Jesus. And it was such a revelation that made your pastor what he was. Without this, all his other gifts would be of no account. It is, however, an instructive fact that the apostle who labored, suffered, and accomplished more than all the others was the most richly endowed with natural abilities and education. When these gifts are relied upon and are made the ground of self-glorification, they are like a fire made of thorns, brilliant and noisy, but it soon goes out in the darkness, leaving nothing but ashes to be scattered by the wind. But when the possessor feels as Paul felt, that he is nothing and can do nothing, so he then relies not on his powers of persuasion, but solely upon the demonstration of the Spirit. Then... God condescends to use them for his own glory and for the edification of the church.
The Reverend James W. Alexander was therefore what he was as a preacher of Christ, not only because he was a devout worshiper of Christ, but also because he was endowed with such natural gifts and improved them by a long process of culture and discipline. He was born on March 13, 1804, in Louisa County, Virginia, in the house of his maternal grandfather, the Reverend Dr. Waddell, and by whom he was consecrated to God in baptism. His father was the late Archibald Alexander, the esteemed man of the church for our age and country, to whom he was largely indebted for his religious, literary, and theological training. After enjoying the instructions of the most eminently classical teacher of his day, he spent some years learning in Philadelphia, and he completed his academic career in the College of New Jersey in the year 1820. He was appointed as a tutor in that venerable institution while he was pursuing his studies in the Theological Seminary at Princeton. In 1825, he was licensed to preach the gospel. The following year, he became the pastor at Charlotte Courthouse in Virginia, a church which his venerated father had previously served and to which his own son had recently been called. He was forced to relinquish that charge on account of the failure of his health. In 1833, he was elected professor of Bell's Letters in the College of Princeton. He discharged the duties of that office with eminent success for 11 years. In time, he became the pastor of the Duane Street Church in New York, where he was called by the General Assembly of our church to fill the choir of ecclesiastical history and church government in the Theological Seminary at Princeton. A few years' experience convinced him that the sedentary duties of a professor were not suited to his peculiar constitution, and therefore in 1851 he accepted the charge of this church in the service of which he remained until God called him to a higher service in heaven. This recital is sufficient to show how wide and abundant his means of culture and experience were. He never filled a post which he did not adorn, and never left a charge that the people did not mourn over his departure as a sad bereavement. He has died in the rich maturity of his years and usefulness, leaving behind him no superior and few if any equals in the sphere in which he acted. The labors and cares of the pastoral office over such a church, and in such a city as this, had so worn on his sensitive frame that early in the last spring he was obliged to take a break from his services. He sought the renewal of his strength among the mountains of his native state. Every sign promised speedy and complete recovery. You were looking forward with confidence to his return to his home and pulpit, when the sad news reached you that God had otherwise ordained. A few days' illness from an acute disease disappointed all your hopes. Early on the morning of the last Sabbath of July, just as the first rays of the sun touched the tops of the surrounding mountains, the glories of heaven broke on his enraptured gaze. Dr. Alexander united himself, gifts and graces rarely found in combination. God had endowed him with an excellent memory and an insightful intellect. He understood how to apply this knowledge well to his own situation and others. He had a unique delicacy of taste with a musical ear and a resonant voice. These gifts were all cultivated and turned to the best account. Probably no minister in our church was a more accomplished scholar. He was familiar with English literature in all periods of its history. He cultivated the Greek and Latin, French, German, Italian, and Spanish languages, not merely as a philologist, but for the treasures of knowledge 
and of taste which they contain. To this wide compass of his studies, he applied what he learned as a writer. The abundance of his literary allusions, his curious expressions, and the variety of his imagery show this. Many of his productions are like strings of pearls. Each sentence is complete in its own beauty, and all connected by an invisible thread. His simplicity of production was wonderful. He would often accomplish in days what few men could accomplish in as many weeks. He used his pen as if it were a living member of his body and found a positive pleasure in its exercise. He was a frequent contributor to literary and religious journals. The Princeton Review is indebted to him for many of its most valuable contributions, not a few of which have been reprinted both in this country and in England. It was, however, not only in the Department of Literature that Dr. Alexander was distinguished. He was a well-read theologian. Few men were more familiar with the writings of the early fathers or more familiar with Christian doctrine in all its phases. He embraced the faith of the Reformed churches in its integrity with a strength of conviction which nothing but his own religious experience could produce. A faith founded on argument can be shaken by argument. But a conviction of truth arising from religious experience, that is, from a state of consciousness produced by the Spirit of God, is not to be moved. Theology and philosophy are so related that devotion to the former involves the cultivation of the latter. Dr. Alexander was therefore at home in the whole department of philosophical speculation. His last publication was an able exposition of the views of the metaphysicians of the Middle Ages and on one of the most important questions in mental science. So richly was your beloved pastor endowed. These gifts, however, were but accomplishments. Underneath these adornments, in themselves of priceless value, was the man and the Christian. He was an Israelite without guile. Probably no man was living freer from all envy and jealousy and from malice, hypocrisy, and evil speaking. No one ever heard of his saying or doing an unseemly unkind thing. The associations connected with his name in the minds of all who knew him are of things true, just, pure, lovely, and of good report. No one can think of him without being the happier and the better for the thought. He was a delightful companion, his wide knowledge, his humor, his singular power of illustration rendered his conversation, when in health and spirits, a perpetual feast. Having been brought early in life to a saving knowledge of the truth, his religious knowledge and experience were profound and extensive. He was therefore a skilled conversationalist, a wise counselor, and abundantly able to comfort the afflicted with the consolation which he himself had been comforted by God. He was eminently a devout man reverential in all his acts and utterances, and full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. The pulpit was his appropriate sphere. There all his gifts and graces, all his acquirements and experiences, found full scope. Hence the remarkable variety which characterized his preaching, which was sometimes doctrinal, sometimes experimental, sometimes historical, sometimes bringing scriptural scenes and incidents as things present before the mind. It was usually exegetical, unfolding the meaning of the Word of God in its own divine form. Here, too, the vivacity of thought, the eloquent style, and immense use of illustration which were displayed in all his sermons. He could adapt himself to any kind of audience. 
While as a professor in the college, he acted as a voluntary pastor of an African church in Princeton, and we have heard him say that he regarded the sermons which he preached to that congregation the best he ever delivered. As we remarked in the commencement of this discourse, he preached Christ in a matter which seemed to many altogether different. He endeavored to turn the minds of men away from themselves and to lead them to look only to Jesus. He strove to convince his hearers that the work of salvation has been accomplished for them, and it was not to be done by them, that their duty was simply to surrender to the work of Christ, assured that the subjective work of sanctification is due to the objective work of Christ. He so strove to cut off the delays, the anxieties and misgivings which arise from toil, the exercises of our own minds, seeking in what we inwardly experience a warrant for accepting what is outwardly offered to the chief of sinners. He was eminently successful in his ministry, not only in the conversion of sinners, but in comforting and edifying believers. The great charm of his preaching, to which more than anything else its skill to be referred, was his power over religious affections. He not only instructed, encouraged, and strengthened his hearers, but he had the gift of calling out their devotional feelings into application. In his prayers, there were those unique intonations to which the Spirit of God alone can attune the human voice, at the sound of which the gates of heaven seem to unfold, and the worshipers above and the worshipers on earth mingle together, prostrate in adoration. Your religious services under his ministry were the highest form of enjoyment to men on earth. The man who can give us this enjoyment who can raise our hearts to God and bring us into communion with our Savior, we revere and love. This is a power which no one envies, from which no one wishes to detract, and which surrounds its possessor with a sacred halo that attracts all eyes and offends none. Dr. Alexander's preeminence, therefore, was due not to any one gift alone. No, not to his natural abilities or his wide scholarship, or to his extensive theological knowledge and religious experience. It was not to his divine anointing, not even to his gracious speech. It was the combination of all of these things which made him not the best of orders to bear on rare occasions, but the best of preachers to sit under, month after month and year after year. Dr. Alexander was a man of sorrow, frequent family bereavements, repeated attacks of illness, with some of them accompanied by great bodily agony. He also had a shattered nervous system, causing him a degree of suffering protracted through many years, known fully only to God and to his own heart. As he entered heaven, a voice might be heard saying, This is one who has come out of great tribulation and has washed his robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The death of such a man is an irreparable loss. God indeed will raise up other instruments to carry on his work, but no one can ever supply his place to his immediate relatives, to his lifelong friends, and to his children in the faith. They must all carry with them to the grave a wound which knows no healing. Such sorrow, however, is not like the sorrow of the world, which brings with it death. It is the tribute which we willingly pay to those we love. It is not inconsistent with joy and gratitude in the remembrance of all that he was to us and to the church. He was one of the blessed of the Lord, blessed in his parentage, in his early conversion, in his abundant gifts, in his long-continued and eminent usefulness, 
and in the admiration, love, and confidence of the people of God. He had finished his course. He kept the faith. And so there is laid up for him a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give him on that day. In view of such a life and such a destiny, earthly distinctions sink into nothing. No man is so hardened that he would not a thousand times prefer to be what your beloved pastor was and is than to possess all of the wealth and power the world has to give. As this sermon began with the name of Christ, so let it end. The worship of Christ is our religion. The service of Christ is our loyal duty, and the enjoyment of Christ is our heaven. The sum and substance of the preaching heard within these walls is that Christ is the only source of truth, of righteousness, of holiness, and of eternal life, so that we will be complete in him. To him, therefore, be honor and glory, might and majesty, and dominion over a world without end. Amen. Dr. Alexander, he sounds like a great man. And I ask us, and this is a pretty simple thought I walked away with from the sermon. If you were to die, if, you know, if if I was to die, if somebody was to die, if you were to die today or tomorrow, the next day, would anybody be able to speak of you in these kind of terms? Would they talk about you and just with such certainty of your faith in Christ? You know, they may not know Maybe you say, well, I don't have all these languages under my belt. I don't have all this professorship. I'm not this fancy guy. Sure, but Hodge, throughout this entire sermon, just is like, it's his faith in Christ that motivates him, that just kind of breathes out of his mouth. He just is constantly coming out of him. And could people say that about you? Could Hodge preach that part of his sermon about you? And if not, what do you need to do? What do you need to maybe look back on your life and ask the question, why couldn't I be spoken of in that way? What am I, what's holding me back from living for Christ in such a way that when I'm at my funeral and someone is someday maybe reading it a hundred years from now, they're gonna go, wow, that man must've been on fire for Christ. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by John Raynor. John Raynor has been a commercial radio announcer in America, Samoa since 2006, where he and his wife, Alice, have four children. John is also the host of a daily devotional called The Pre-Game Proverb, a biblical way to start the day. You can find out more at pregameproverb.blog. If you enjoyed this episode of Revived Thoughts, we highly encourage you to just go make sure you're subscribed to all the shows here. Uh, Revived Radio just ended its first season, but you can check out uh, Martyrs and Missionaries, where Elise is putting out wonderful and great content every single week on Wednesdays. And you can also check out Revived Devos, which is a daily devotional podcast uh, with lots of great speaking. At this point, hundreds of episodes that you can catch up on going through some of the great works of old that can encourage you in your walk with God. And Nathaniel does a wonderful job with that show. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. The Better Samaritan Podcast, where we're learning how to love our neighbors well in a world filled with injustice and pain. Join me, Kent Annan, and Jamie Ayton, my co-host and colleague at the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College, 
as we interview experts with insight on learning to do good better. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.